So I want to tell you about growing up in Youngstown, Ohio. We were a steel town. Steel mills came into Youngstown right after the turn of the century. By 19, the mid-1920s, late 1920s, they had state-of-the-art steel mills. We grew up all over Youngstown, Ohio. We're a relatively small town. By the end of World War II, uh, we were the highest steel-producing per capita city in the world. So it was a small town with a whole bunch of steel mills. There was one river that ran right through the middle of the town. It's called the Mahoning River. And for miles on either side of the Mahoning River from Youngstown, there were steel mills. And because the steel mills were built in the 1920s or so, there was no regard for conservation, no regard for the environment. They just dumped all of their waste into the Mahoning River. By the time I was a kid, uh, you could walk across the Market Street Bridge and smell the river. It was dark, it was murky, and at night it would burn. There were pockets of oil and gas floating down the river, and if they ignited, you could see these pockets of blue flame floating down the river, and that eventually emptied into the Ohio River. And we didn't think too much of it until we began to realize that that water was not just in the river, it would seep into the water table. And I remember, I was six or seven years old, I remember seeing a picture of uh, two men fishing from a boat in a river and telling my dad, people fish in rivers? Why would they ever do that? I was so far beyond anything that I could imagine because the only river I knew was the Mahoning River and that was the one that burned. So what we found out in the long run, they eventually cleaned it up, but what we found out is that pollution hurts. Pollution is a bad thing. And we're kind of going to see that in our passage in Malachi today. Okay, uh, last week we, we saw God's love, we saw the great love that he had for his people, we saw his unerring faithfulness, even when they were unfaithful, he was faithful. Uh, we saw the people's lack of love and faithfulness for each other and for God at the same time, but we saw that God stays faithful whether we are or not, and that gave us some hope because the story of the Hebrew people is a lot like our story. There are times when we're faithful times when we're passionate about our relationship with God, and sometimes when we're not so passionate. So God is faithful even when we're not. And so this week, we're going to find out the results of that unfaithfulness on behalf of God's people were resulting in pollution. And oddly enough, the lesson comes through the priests of Israel. Now, we need to understand the role that the priests played. Uh, they were the spiritual heads. They were the leaders. They were the ones who set the example. They were the ones who were responsible for the spiritual welfare of the nation. And they were struggling. They were having a hard time. They were actually rebelling against God. And what they did was that their rebellion showed up in two infractions that they committed against their Father in heaven. And that's what we're going to see in 6 through 14 of Malachi 1. Number one, they were despising and dishonoring God's name. We'll talk about the name in just a little second. And the other thing is, they were offering polluted sacrifices. So the name of this sermon is Pollution. Uh, this is the second in our series in the coming messenger out of Malachi. We'll roll from this right into the Gospel of Luke right around Christmas time. So I'm looking forward to this, this next eight or ten months or so spending this time looking at the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament and the coming of the Messiah. 
So let's take a look at how these priests are despising and dishonoring God's name. It starts out in verse 6. God is in the middle of this dialogue with, with his children. He's talking to the priests. And he says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? Now we have to understand Jewish tradition here. Jewish tradition had a high view of the father in a family. He was to be honored. He was to be respected. He was to be obeyed. Now this comes from the Ten Commandments. And the the Fifth Commandment is honor your father and your mother. But we have a tendency to look at these things and go, oh yeah, I should honor my father and that will help me understand how I honor God. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. The relationship between a father and his children is dictated by God. And the family relationship is supposed to be a mirror of the relationship that God has with his children. So our view of our father does not form our view of God. And we got to be careful with this because some of us have grown up in houses where we didn't have such a great relationship with our father. Some of us have grown up in houses where there wasn't a father. And if we allow our earthly father's perspective to taint our perspective on our heavenly father, we're going to have a problem. If you didn't get along with your dad, and you think that that's how you're going to get along with God, you're going to struggle in your relationship with the Father. Our Father in heaven is not our earthly father. And he's given us the family model to show us how we should get along with him. So our perspective on our family should be influenced by our perspective on God. It's not the other way around. So we're told to honor our father and mother. We're told to, to uh, be, be obedient to them. But we have to understand that our honor and obedience to our father and mother are in as much as they are to the Lord. So if your father or your mother are asking you to sin, that you don't put yourself in a situation where you say, well, I have to be obedient. So I've got to do whatever they say, otherwise I'm going to be in trouble. It's as unto the Lord. So the model is the relationship between God and his children, not our relationship between our earthly fathers. So we see that God demands this familial relationship with his people, a loving father uh, and an honor-giving, obedient child sitting under the authority of the father. And that's a good relationship. I like that. Another thing that we have to be very, very careful of is that we don't take that relationship too casually so that we don't take that relationship for granted. God loves us. We are his children. He wants good things for us, but he's not this big fluffy character in the sky that we're just going to go run and jump into his lap. So he's holy. He is pure. He is pure truth. We have to understand that there are two aspects to our relationship with our Father in heaven. One of them is his Father, and the other one comes in the second half of the verse here. He says, and if I am a master, where is my fear? Now we've got another facet to our relationship with our Father in heaven. He's our master, and we are to fear him. Now, what is this fear? This comes from the Hebrew word morah, okay? And it's not that tremble in your boots, shaking, God's going to get me type of fear. This is a reverential awe of who God is. It's a deep hidden respect for his holiness, for his majesty. Uh, we look at him and it kind of takes our breath away and it drives us to our knees. I think that it is significant 
that every time somebody in the Bible comes into the presence of the Spirit of God, what we would call a theophany, what the theologians call a theophany, they don't go around and jump into his lap. They fall down on their face, confronted with the, the holiness, confronted with the purity, the bright light, the righteousness of God, they understand their lack of those things. So we have a Father in heaven who loves us, but we are to respect and revere him as well. And God says, if I'm your father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests. He's talking to the priests of, of, of Israel, the spiritual leaders. And they're neglecting their honor and their reverence of their Father in heaven. As a matter of fact, it says, who despise my name? So he's not just a father, he's a master. And a slave treats his master with reverential respect. He knows that the master holds his fate in his hands. He knows that the master is responsible for his welfare, that he reigns over his life. God demands not only the honor of a father, but the awe and respect of a master. And he's not getting either one from the priests. It's an incredible situation. And, and look, look at the response. But you say, how have we despised your name? This is a challenge. There's tension here. God says, I'm your father. And and I'm your master, and you're not giving me honor, and you're, you're not giving me fear. And they turn around and go, what do you mean we're not giving you what you expect? And this sets the tone for the nation of Israel in the 5th century B.C. They're speaking to the creator of the universe. And the, the, their attitude is a challenge. It's tinged with indignation. There's a disagreement in what God is saying. It's not just a lack of honor and fear. It's a lack of to- any respect at all. And you've had these types of discussions with people. You've gone up to somebody and said, I think you stole my money. What do you mean you uh, took your money? The idea that they're correcting God. That God has made a statement and they just don't agree with it and they're going to set him straight. God responds to this lack of honor and fear twice in the passage. The first time is in verse 11. It says, For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God uses the phrase, my name, three times in one verse. It must be important, amen? Okay. We know the Jews had a different perspective on names than we do. A name was more than just a label that you had on your chest. It represented the character and nature of that person. It represented the essence of that person. It was what made that person that individual. It also re- represented his reputation, So God is saying, you are my people. I'm not getting respect from you. There's a cultural element in here. Uh, We'll talk about that in just a second. But he says, at some point in time, everybody is going to revere and respect my name. And this is what this whole East and West thing is. It's everybody in the known world will know who I am. All of the nations, that there will be offerings and incense and pure offerings from every place. Now, that was a little bit of a challenge to the priests. 
Because as far as the priests understood things up until this particular point, all of the sacrifices and offerings were done in Jerusalem. And God is saying, you know, Jerusalem's special, but it's not so special that it's the only place. There will come a day when all nations will recognize who I am and will, these offerings will come up from all different places. So God's second response to them comes at the end of the passage. And even though his people are uh, uh, lacking reverence and honor, God is going to receive both from the nations. He's going to receive those things from the world because for the 14, in verse 14b, for I am a says the Lord of hosts be feared among the nations now this is not God saying you will not fear and honor me so I'll get my fear and honor from someplace else this is God saying you're my children remember his love is unending. his faithfulness is everlasting this is God saying to his children that they should be setting the example that the reason they, he made them his children is that they should be the glowing billboard for God's holiness and, and for his love and for his mercy and his grace. And they're falling down on the job. One day everyone will respect and fear him, but they get to be the first. They get to be the exemplar for everybody else. And if their relationship with God honors God and reveres him, then the other people should be following them. And they're dropping the ball. And their lack of honor and respect is showing up in how they worship and how they come together. Instead of giving God respect, they're giving Him contempt. They're offering polluted sacrifices. Watch this. Verse 7. By offering polluted food upon my altar, this is how they're offending Him, but you say, how have we polluted you? They challenge him again. You, you say we polluted What are you talking about? Now, the Lord's table uh, it is, is, is the altar. The, the, it's the place of communion. It's a place of fellowship. It's a place where the relationships are established and maintained. It's a place of blessing. And they're bringing polluted sacrifices to this holy place and it's by saying the lord's table may be despised now he's looking at the heart of the priests they actually despise their relationship with the father they say it's contemptible how do you get there how does that happen it's not like they woke up one day and went ah oh, I find this contemptible. These things, and you, you know, they were people just like us. Don't look at them and go, well, how naive can you be? Because they're just like us. And the way these things happen is they happen gradually. They happen day by day. It's a gradual deterioration. Doesn't happen overnight. But if you take a look at their situation, maybe we get a little bit of insight as to what's going on. They were taken captive. They're taken away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's nearly destroyed. They're sent back in an act of grace from King Cyrus. God uses King Cyrus to send them back. But now they're living with non-Jews. 
I mean, the region is inhabited by Gentiles, and this was objectionable to the, the Jewish people. So they're surrounded by non-Jews. They're ruled over by Persia, but also probably ruled over by Samaria as well. And that was even more objectionable to them. They had a bad economy, and taxes were incredibly high. So they're living under this hardship, uh, and the economy is going totally bust, and they're trying to get by. They're doing everything they can just to put food on the table. And how do they react to that hardship? Well, they shove God to the back burner. doesn't happen overnight again, but it slowly happens. He becomes second priority, and then maybe third priority, and then maybe fourth priority. God says in verse 8, when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? So they're bringing defective animals in for the sacrifices. And, you know, it, the book of Exodus and Levi tell us that the sacrifices should be without defect and should be blemish-free. And God says that this type of sacrifice is morally evil. It's wicked. And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? And again, he reveals the heart of the priests. They're, they're not being cheap. This is open, contemptible rebellion against God. And, and watch this. Present that to your governor. Will he accept or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. They were actually giving the governor better sacrifices than they were giving their father in heaven. Think about that for a second. They were giving the government more than they were giving their father. You know, one of the struggles I've always had when I write my tithe check, do I do it before or after taxes? Do I give the government the first portion of my pay or do I give it to the Father? You see how easy it is to fall into these things? We don't think too much about it. But over a long period of time, as God takes a backseat in one thing, He takes a backseat in another thing. And then maybe another, and then maybe another, and the next thing you know, we become contemptible. God says, present the type of sacrifice you're, se you're sending to me, give that to your governor, and see if he shows you favor. Now they know if they don't give the governor what he's due, that they're going to be in a heap of trouble. And now the governor is receiving more and better than God is. They want the favor of the governor to pay higher tribute to him, but then they also expect the favor of God for what they're doing. And in verse 9, God makes it clear. He said, now, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. We put God on the second or third shelf and expect him to put us on the first shelf. So God bless my finances. No, I'm not giving anything to you. But if you bless my finances, I will. Then God says this in verse 10. Watch this. 
Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. Now, the doors he's talking about are the doors to the temple. The temple is where they worshipped. The temple is where the sacrifices were made. And God is saying, if there was just one of you that would stop this, stop this sham of a worship that you've presented before me, that you might not kindle fire upon my altar in vain, because this means nothing. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God says he won't accept our second or third best. Verse 12, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. The priests are profaning God's name by their actions. They're doing it in their attitudes as well. They're giving secondary status to the sacrifice and to their worship and giving secondary status to God. Now, again, this didn't happen in a vacuum. Aside from the economy, they're immersed in this culture that doesn't believe in the same God that they believe in. There are gods all over the place. And the culture was telling them that the sacrifice that you celebrate here is outmoded. It's brutal. Why would God demand the shedding of blood in order to cover you for your sins? That doesn't make sense. If God is really the loving God that you said he was, then he'd just forgive you of your sins. You don't have to do all this killing. You have to follow all those rules. And by the way, your God's not the only way. That doesn't make any sense. What is important is if you're sincere about what you believe. There are a lot of roads that go to God. Why are you claiming that there's only one? You people are bigoted and narrow-minded. And you've got a narrow-minded God as well. And that God of wrath that you talk about, who wants to worship a God that's mad all the time? See, they're surrounded by this. And in their economic hardship and the pressures from the culture, they begin to compromise their worship services. They begin to make them look a bit more like the world so they can fit in, so that more people might come. Maybe things haven't changed very much in 2,500 years. And then in verse 13, we get the capper. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept from that from your hand, says the Lord. Said, what a weariness this is. I don't like to get up early. And I, I got to tell you something. Since the time has changed, it's cold outside. It's dark. My alarm goes off. And all I want to do is stay home. And I say to myself, man, it's been a hard week. I don't you know what? I deserve a day off. I think I'm going to take a break today. I'll call Elder Ristow and ask him to preach. And he would do a good job. You see, that's the weariness that we're talking about here. It's so easy 
It's so easy to allow that first slip to take place. I don't want to go to the assembly. I'll watch it on TV. I'll sleep in. Sit in my jammies. Have some toast. Because I just need some rest. Then we snort at it. I don't like organized religion anyway. I don't like all those rules and everything. I can go to any church, every church I want. I'm a member of the body of Christ. I'll go over here sometimes and over there sometimes. And most of the time I'll just stay at home. See, that's, that stuff creeps in. And it becomes acceptable. And we justify it. And the priests have justified it to the point to where they challenge God on what he says. He says, you're not honoring me. You've got to be kidding. We're giving you all the honor we can. You bring me polluted sacrifice. Hey, it's the best we've got. You should be happy with that. Their relationship with God has gotten so casual and so pushed to the back burner that he's just become one God amongst other gods. See, here's a major problem that the priests had. They have supplanted God with worldly things. And it now begins to show up in their sacrifice, in their worship, their casual attitude about God shows up in a way they challenge him. There's no respect, no honor, and certainly no gratefulness for what he's done. That's the priest's rebellion. They're despising, dishonoring the reputation in the character and nature of their Father in heaven. And they are offering polluted sacrifice. Now here's their problem. Because they're in trouble. The economy, culture, all this is going on. And they have no way of dealing with their situation. They don't have the spiritual tools that they need to walk through the hardship that they're going through. And that's been the pattern all along. We've talked about this a number of times. The Hebrew people have gone through this pattern for over 2,000 years when we get to this point. And the pattern has been God provides, God blesses, they praise Him, they begin to slip, they fall away then they suffer, then they call out to him, sincerely, contritely call out to him, and then God provides. And then it starts over and over again. These people in Malachi's time are stuck in the fall away part. Until they call out contritely, until they make that radical change in their perspective on God and a relationship with God, nothing is going to happen. So they will continue to struggle. All because they take God for granted. All because they've lost their respect for Him. All because they began to give Him the second best. And then that turned into polluted seconds. See, that's the problem with pollution. Is it creeps up on you, just like it did Youngstown, Ohio. And you don't realize the damage it's done until it's almost too late. But the good news for us, brothers and sisters, is we have Malachi to take a look at. We don't have to make the same mistake 
that the priests made. We don't have to allow our, our faith to languish. We don't have to allow God to become second fiddle to us. We don't have to push Him to the back burner. We can be aware of what's happening around us because we live in the same environment those people did. And as we gather here, as we come together on Sunday morning, this becomes a source of light. We have the light of the world in us. And there's darkness out there, brothers and sisters, and we know that the darkness can't stand against the light. So we consciously work to make God our ultimate priority, our first priority. We consciously work to give Him our best, and we work together to do that. We encourage each other to do it. We lift each other up to do it. We hold each other accountable for it. And as we give Him our best, God blesses. And then we keep Him there. We keep Him there as our highest priority, as our fondest goal, as the goal of our heart's desire. And watch what that does to the world out here. They are about to experience this. It's going to take another 400 years. So none of them are going to be there. But they're about to experience what happens when Jesus shows up in their life. And they become a shining billboard for the glory of God. That's the opportunity that we have before us. And those are the things that we should be praying about as we pray for the church and pray for those who need Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have an incredible opportunity in front of us. And the only question we're ever going to have to ask ourselves, do we want it? Do we want it? Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for who you are. I thank you for this message, a sobering message from Malachi. We have the examples, Father. But we have an advantage that Malachi didn't have. Lord, we have the indwelling spirit in us that will guide us and counsel us and lead us Father, we pray that we would heed that spirit. Lord, that we would walk with him throughout the day. Him whispering in our ear those things you would have us know and those things you would have us do, Father. Be our strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.